Sci-Fi Roundtable Podcast. Today's subject is extremes of tech and magic in fiction. Now, if that isn't a big subject, I'm not sure what is. Today with me, we have uh, Mr. Eric Wickland. Hello. Wendy Vandekamp. Or Van Camp. Van Camp. There's no D in there. I'm my boss. It is uh, Van Camp. Yeah. Van Camp. Uh, and Aaron uh, Cavill. Is that right? Uh, Cavley. Cavley. Apologies. Me and names have never gotten along. Uh, we are also supposed to be getting Mr. Bill McCormick, but he hasn't jumped in with us just yet. And we'll let everybody know uh, if and when he does. So we have quite the subject here. So um, why don't we start with what we all think that means? Well, I know for me, I occasionally will read a story and it'll have a very cool premise, uh, whether it's sci-fi or magic. And then as I'm thinking about the book later on, which I'm want to do, if it's a good book, I'll get to one of those points where it's like, well, if they can do this, then why didn't they do that? So, you know, the, the idea of th- they have some extreme ability or important ability, and sometimes it seems like this, the story ignores what other people would do or what other effects that would have in that society, in that culture, in that, you know, that, that world. Makes sense. Yeah, I agree with that. For me, something that's used extensively where society is profoundly affected by that technology would count as extreme. So, for instance, right now, electricity, I would say, amounts to extreme technology. Because if you think about it, our Western world relies tremendously upon electricity in many different forms. So... I think that's an extreme. Going forward, I think that uh, nanotechnology will be the next great extreme. Are you saying that we live in a science fiction world? To someone in the 1800s, I'd say so, yeah. My grandparents, you know, they were born before planes. And then, uh, you know, in their lifetime, they went from no electricity, still having uh, farm animals, to, you know, people on the moon and airplanes. I don't know. I guess when I read, uh, and I'm thinking of extremes, I think of concepts that go far beyond what I consider norm in our technology. A lot of current science fiction and fantasy is very grounded in present-day technology. For instance, urban fantasy doesn't stray too far from our society, and it has a small magical element or maybe a larger magical element or supernatural element added or classic science fiction it extrapolates our current technology and maybe goes a step further when i think of extreme um, science fiction i think of technologies that extrapolate very far in the future i mean going to the ends of the universe uh, just uh, taking a, a golden age example there's a foundation by asimov he envisioned an entire galactic civilization and created a new science, uh, the science of, I guess, what was it, pseudo-history or whatever, or predictive Psycho-history, I think. Yeah, psycho-history was the term. For me, that is extreme technology or even magic, because in the end, 
their technology appeared to be magic to the future galactic people once they uh, lost their civilization and crashed down and were working their way back up. So to me, that's an extreme example. I appreciated the description of a Volkswagen bug with tracks. (laughs) But that is an excellent description, an excellent example of how archaeologists can get it wrong. Because we look at it and we're like, that's just not right. But without a time traveler, you don't know. We don't know how many pieces we've gotten wrong. And that's kind of fun. For me, extremes, I mean, I do play with some extremes a little bit uh, in my own work, uh, especially my log entries, uh, uh, blog series. The drive system allows the subject of the, uh, the log entry series to leap beyond their own universe but within this might require a little bit of uh, explanation in my universe each universe as most people think of it is an arc event an arc event is everything we see out all the stars the galaxies and whatnot but each arc event shares the same physical space as other arc events they're just separated by the physical space by such distances that even light may never cross it and an arc event is essentially a flaw in space-time where the underlying some people might call it quantum foam the probability field that space sits within leaks in takes form because it's now within the three-dimensional fabric of space and it reaches a critical mass and you get your big bang which seals the rift seals that scar and the scar looks like an electric arc in space thus an arc event but they're able to jump between arc events and they didn't even know this when they first started it because the drive was experimental they usually are it's a bit of a lost in space kind of concept, but that's kind of extreme, the amount of distances that they're traversing. And one of the things that they come across, um, they refer to as the speaker. And essentially, it is a gravitational speaker. And it's the size of a red giant star. And it has a white dwarf as the driver magnet. And it's just sitting there pumping and the white dwarf is pumping in and out of this, uh, out of a speaker. It's this massive construct. And does it pump out gravitation waves? Exactly. Wow. Yeah. What they end up finding out is that it's only one of many such objects. And each one is spaced ridiculously far apart. And If you get to one and you interface with it, you can start to develop a map of the wider universe and see where each individual arc event actually lies. To hit on the other part of our discussion on that, did you think about or, or plot how those discoveries changed the society that they were living in? You know, what other ramifications that had in the overall world? As far as they know, they don't know, because while they have uh, an electron tunneling uh, entangled comms device that appears to be functional to allow them to communicate with their their home world, they've never gotten anything back out of it. Although there's... So they're, really just, they're operating in isolation. They're, 
Gotcha. As far as they know, okay, yeah. Lost in space, gotcha. Okay. They're very much lost in space. <laughs> if you got within close proximity of this, though, wouldn't the gravity waves crush anything, any vehicle that got too close to it? Uh, on the uh, speaker side, absolutely. But because of the way it's working, it's directional. Right. And that is kind of addressed. You get too close, and they're I like, I think the. Um... You're able to come a lot of the, the things are common sci-fi tropes because they, they get used so often. They're really extreme in and of themselves. You know, like if you just look at something like FTL, everyone uses it, right? You know, I mean, it's it's very common in in fiction, but when you when you start discussing or, or thinking about what other ramifications that would mean, aside from just the you know the the breaking of of relativity. You know, in, in that kind of old math stuff. It depends stuff. on how you're going um, about FTL. But there's, you know, a lot of a lot of those tropes. I think, you know, come from you know, like the artificial gravity or even transporters. You know, the things that we we've come to accept because of because of the popular shows we've seen. You know, and we know that that some of those are just basically they're based on you know special effects limitations. Because if if your set is in L.A., it's it's a little tricky to to generate a you know some kind of uh, zero gravity environment for the sake of realism. Unintended having process. having those technologies in a world, I don't think they get at least sometimes examined as to what they might mean you know further down the road. In my last book, I kind of ran into some of that because they they use a like a jump drive, and I sort of had to think about how that would affect the tactics, you know, the military tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if you have the ability to move your force in a certain way that's, you know, not, not linear, then that will necessarily change the face of tactics, uh, of warfare, kind of like the, you know, the airplane changed naval warfare, you know, things drastically changed because of that one development. David Weber dealt with that pretty well, where um, whole star systems could have a, a wormhole but even a limitation where only one ship could pass through this wormhole at a time. And that, that was kind of a difficulty for an attacking force because if the, the enemy knew you were coming, they could just array this huge number of ships around that exit and wait for one ship to come out at, at one time. And wow, that really changed the military tactics. The pilots of the ships had to do very dangerous things, come through at an unsafe rate in order to attempt to overwhelm the defenses that are waiting for them. It's kind of like in World War II when you're trying to get a beachhead. They know you're coming. They've got all their artillery dialed in to hit the very spot you're going to enter. And so planners figured you needed a four-to-one advantage in forces just to establish a beachhead. The idea being that that first ship through is basically going to be a kamikaze mission. Yeah. They're just going to die. That's, that's just the yeah, end of it. Go through and kill as much as you can before you get taken out, because that's yeah. all that's going to happen. <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> that's a pretty ballsy move for that first ship to go through. <laughs> Who wants to draw straws on that mission? Not me. But that Get comes it. into the one of the first questions that uh, were put into the, the chat was, you know, the unintended consequences and of tech which can lead to extremes and how that feeds into world building i know i play with that a little bit when it comes to uh, genetic technology because 
there is the creation of what I referred to as a gen tank, G-E-N tank. And I'm sure you can figure out what that means. <laughs> uh, the idea being that with a combination of nanotechnology, tailored viruses, and a few weeks or more, depending on what's being done, in a gen tank, you can heal, repair injuries, replace limbs, even completely re-engineer a person, um, granting them all sorts of things. And uh, I have characters who the technology was originally driven for created for the military to create essentially super soldiers granting soldiers animal characteristics claws an eagle's eyesight a wolf's hearing that sort of thing right but this comes with a side effect you you can't just give somebody a wolf's inner ear and have that do them any good so you end up with animal characteristics in these people and then that technology it inevitably unintentional consequences it becomes you know available to the public and people that want extreme body mods well that's actually being done today in real life so is that really considered extreme anymore there are people that are replacing body parts uh creating uh, um, augmented senses, even today with today's technology. Now, that's mm -hmm. one of the things about talking about extremes. I mean, I don't know if there's necessarily an extreme in technology in our writing anymore. For instance, I'm working on a series about the planet Mars and how they're going to artificially create a magnetic field around the planet so that it can be re-terraformed. I want and to hear about that. Is actually is actually available out there. It hasn't been built naturally, but the specs are available. And I mean, just take uh, Andy Weir, who did The Martian. His entire book was based on technology that had already been figured out by scientists. And he used that as the base of his blockbuster movie and book. So, you know, maybe 20 years ago, we would have thought that was extreme. but is it extreme now? I, I don't know. Well, does anything extreme mean that it's greater than what we have now? It could be, but technology catches, I mean, literally you blink and suddenly it exists. There's also this uh, feedback loop in the world. The scientists are actually combing science fiction books for ideas to create things for their companies so that they can quickly copyright it and make a buck. We don't get any money for that, but we usually generate the ideas. I mean, Star Trek is a great example of that. Think of how much of that technology was extreme for its day only 20, 30 years ago. And yet today it's commonplace. I mean, look at your cell phone in your pocket. You know, even 20 years ago, that would have been science fiction. And for today sure. we look at it every day and we go, poof, it's just a cell phone. We have uh, had Mr. Bill McCormick join us. Hey, Bill. Hello. Hi, everybody. Good, good. We were wondering if we were going to uh, miss out on you today. No, the uh, the text I got said it was going to be three hours after I got the text, which was at one. So it would have been a half hour from now. So I, by, by my messages, I'm a half hour early. Well, all right then. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm here. Well, you see, now in the future, you'll have a, a nanotech computer inside your brain. That will organize all these things for you. 
<laughs> and prompt you at the very time that you're supposed to attend the meeting. There, there is actually, um, this is kind of scary, but there, there is a, uh, a chip that you can have implanted that will warn you on when things are happening. Uh, it was being tested out at uh, Oxford, of all places, last year. Uh, it's not commercially available, but it's the beginnings of exactly what you just said. See, what well, did I tell you? You blink, and suddenly there it is. <laughs> <laughs> That's the struggle that uh, we have discussed in previous podcasts is, you know, especially with those that aren't jumping into the far, far future or other worlds, if you're trying to do near future science fiction, you run the risk of, if you can't get that out fast enough, it's history already. Oh, yeah. Look at our uh, faster than light travel uh, science fiction stories uh, going interstellar. We would think, oh, that's far in the future. It's not going to be done for hundreds of years. And yet they have the uh, prototypes of warp drives that they think will work. And they're going, oh, maybe 15, 20 years. And I'm going, whoa, you mean we may have interstellar travel in my lifetime? I mean, that boggles my mind. That's like the uh, people that lived in the Wild West with the covered wagons actually living to see a moon launch, which did happen in our history. So that may be our moon launch in a sense. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. I think another part of the extremes that these go to is not even necessarily taking more steps, but figuring out what we do with them. You know, when the cell phone was invented, a lot of futurists have, you know, suggested things they could be used for, but the the cell phone has merged into basically the center of our society. You know, it's used for video, it's used for everything. You know, there's house cameras, you know, pretty much gone. Everything's on that. People watch, you know, so much of their media on this little thing they have in their hand. There's a there's a uh, meme that goes around periodically that shows a desk full of stuff, both up on the corkboard and laid out. It's got phone been... and an address book and notepads <laughs> and a typewriter and music player and a boombox and all this stuff. And then they're like, this was 1980 or something like that. And then they show an iPhone. That's yep. It. Right. My, my four-year-old daughter thinks that a camera is a phone. Yeah. You know, I'll tell you something kind of fun. Uh, I do a weekly radio show here in Chicago on a, a Fox affiliate. And a few years back, we did a history of cell phones because readers, you know, listeners had written in and like, how did we get to where we are about the technology? And it was, I actually only, have an answer for that one. If your answer has anything to say other than porn, you're wrong. Well, um, my my father uh, actually worked for AT&T and helped test the original cell phone network in Chicago. Yeah, my mother my mother worked for IBT, which then became AT&T. Right. And, and uh, he, he's, he's fond of saying that uh, when they were first building phones, you know, the executives and whatnot um, were like, oh, yeah, this is just going to be high-end business guys and whatnot. And uh, they forgot to take into the account the, the 16-year-old girl factor. <laughs> yeah, the 16-year-old girl factor. But one of the things, like, uh, before we went from the UUNet to the World Wide Web, one of the driving forces was so people could get visuals on the web, which was, didn't exist and it was all text. The driving force behind getting visuals on the web was not medical transactions, was not people wanting to look at uh, your bank statements. It was porn. They wanted to get porn on the web. And they, those companies paid big money 
to uh, pay for the research that led to the, what became the World Wide Web. Uh, back, now, I'm old enough to remember, you used to have to go out and buy a box, a big cardboard box with all these disks in it, and it said World Wide Web, and that's what it was. You had to load about 20 disks to make it work on your computer. Back in the days when a 486 processor was like lightning fast, and the future was there. Um, and then for cell phones, yes, the cell phone network itself was tested out to just be for upper-class citizenry. But in 2002, Virgin, what was becoming Virgin Mobile, uh, actually held a symposium that they wanted to upgrade their phones so that they could handle high bandwidth porn. That was the only reason, because they figured everything else would fall in line after that. Medical stuff, your x-rays, all that stuff. Everything else, we could use that if they could figure out how to make that happen. And there's some very funny stories about some very straight-laced people watching some very cutting-edge porn trying to make it work on a phone. But I love our country. And I love our world. We have access to a little bit more than that today. Yeah, right. <laughs> all about the market. I, t- I take your point, and that that is the the way we utilize the internet and our phones, and the way we're having this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. Our knock-on, not necessarily unintended consequences, but definitely consequences of watching those first first bits of porn. <laughs> We always have people who come up with the good ideas, and then we have people who will come up with other things to do with those good ideas. A lot of times we call them criminals, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> they, uh, you know, they, they do get some some pretty good ideas out there. Yep. With, uh, so, criminals or businessmen? Yes. Criminals, businessmen. <laughs> Thin line. It, it, yeah, yeah. Um, well, isn't it, though, business that that's going to drive these future techs? I mean, the tech is going to expand and grow if there's a way for business to exploit it. Now cell phones to be able have to become, be willing to pay for it because you know when it all comes down to it, we're we're all still just you know trying to eat. And so if I you remember know, if we're not spending in, our time raising you know raising gardens and cows, then you know someone's got to be doing that while someone else is willing to pay them to uh, um, fix you know fix the radio stations or whatever. What was that, Wendy? I was just saying that's the key point to good business is finding a new niche and creating a need for it. And that comes back to what we do as science fiction writers. We're the idea people. We not only take the ideas that we see for the future, but we put it into a social context. And that is what these innovators, maybe thieves, I don't know, but uh, they take these ideas and make them into reality. But we are the spark. We are what creates the original idea and shows not only the pitfalls of what may happen, but also the solutions. Now, our um, writing, I think, has been kind of dystopian in nature, maybe for the last 10, 15 years. But we could also make an effort to show what good could come of technology, too, and help create a better future. I've got a book coming out this year. I actually, I wanted to address both of those in the same book because why not? Nothing better to do with my life. So the main character, <laughs> main character is someone who uses technology for evil, but there's a sidekick of the technology that he develops. He's very cutting edge, very, very smart man. The technology he develops ends up being able to help people who are crippled and help people who are injured, regain motion, regain mobility, regain all these things and makes him superhuman, but it helps people who are less than human or less than so basically get back up to even and 
it's an interesting subplot in the book, and thank God they're not stopping me in the first book because I want to explore it again and again and again and again. It's going to be fun, but uh, it, it it's, it's interesting when you look at it. Um, and I used uh, Elon Musk's microchipping uh, for a better better world. I used his paper on that as the basis for this. And so uh, it's near like you guys are talking about near future tech. I'm writing about something that was a theoretical paper last year. I finished the book this year. And there are people in Oxford going, you know, we can do part one of this now. So I got to get this book out before it's, before it's, before it's a history book. Yeah. Right. As long as you create compelling characters and an interesting plot, even if your tech is, you know, becoming reality, I think you'll still have a viable book. Well, so. from your mouth to God's monitor. Um, <laughs> So far, my beta readers have been really into the book. And because I have military tech and stuff like that, I've been having some specific people that I normally wouldn't go to. I normally just like, here, read the damn thing. But uh, like this time, I've got a guy who's, you know, former career army uh, going through checking out my military stuff. And he said he was 200 pages into it before he realized he was supposed to make a note. That's, That's a, a good comment to get. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm, I'm not upset. Trust me, I am not upset. Um, I had a guy who uh, worked on Black Panther. He, he and I have a deal now that he beta reads everything I do because he, that's what he does. He beta reads uh, stuff for um, Marvel's film companies. Everything they do goes through his desk. So I figured that's a good set of eyes to have on my side. Bill has a uh, very line. good pedigree. <laughs> so I imagine a world where nanotechnology provides most of the production. And for this reason, medical nanotechnology is available to all citizens. And I tried to imagine what the sociological effect of that would be. And it occurred to me that in the current world, people are obsessed with fashion and wearing the latest styles. And I thought that people might start doing body modifications that would be just as fashionable as clothing is to us now. My comic book line, Hybrid Zero, is exactly that. That's the whole thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm imagining people walking around with animal horns mm -hmm. or skin that displays <laughs> patterns, moving patterns, or working wings sprouting from their head or animal ears. You know, the guy in real life that did that, he, he changed his face so it looked more like a cat. He had whiskers installed into his muzzle for real. And yes, the tiger. he locked his ears. It was really, it was very unusual. Definitely extreme body modification. And yeah, that yeah. lady in Mexico who uh, turned herself into a demon by having uh, the horns drilled into her head and her skin tattooed in different layers. So yeah, yeah that's, that's cool. That's a lot of fun. The guy had, had actually surgically embedded horns into his forehead. Mm -hmm. and And now he was quite upset that people give him weird looks when he went to the grocery store. I'm like, what do you want? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you know? But there are weird subcultures in our world right now. There are people who are furries, right? They like hey, to I won a 2015 furry award. <laughs> oh, wow. You did? I wrote a story that's in an anthology called Dogs of War, and it won a furry award because it's all about furries gone wrong or furries gone wild. And in my case, it was somebody genetically modified dogs so they had thumbs, but they didn't want to pay to feed them while they were growing. So they were feeding them prisoners as opposed to death row. So oh it was really, yeah, it's gross. Oh. It's pretty grooming. Mm. Uh, 
that anyway, they, they, they loved it and it won me an award. And it's one of those things that you win and you go, now where the fuck can I show this? <laughs> Another that, technology that's, cool. that's up and coming that I've tried to incorporate in a couple of mine is, is printer technology. You know, because I, I was in the Navy for a while and it was all about spare parts, you know, crap, we need to get spare parts to, you know, to fix the airplane or whatnot. But if you can just go down and put in your substrate or whatever and print out the new transmitter card, then that changes the logistics of military operations. Oh, yeah. And, and when you look at the things that are happening with medical printers, you know, I mean, they're they're starting to figure out how to print biological you know, things. So we're talking about getting back, getting to our replicators, you know, or, or print out the food, print out my Earl Grey, hot, whatever. You know. <laughs> well, the, the, the Martian colony people that do want to go to Mars for real, they actually have a whole line of, um, I guess they're going to build their buildings via printers. And they had a contest with um, architecture to decide on the building structures that will go on Mars one day. And the whole thing will be built up with um, Rigolith from the Martian um, landscape. Right. But they'll go into robots, which will build all the buildings for the people even before they get there uh, via yep. printing processes. If it's the tech I think uh, you're talking about, it's been used a couple of times uh, here on Earth to print yeah. uh, via, they basically printed the building's walls utilizing uh, concrete. It mm -hmm. just kind of lays it down in a strip, and it just kind of fuses together. Yeah, it's amazing. Really fascinating. Well, that's, I think that's the only way we're going to successfully pull off a Mars colony mm -hmm. is if you can do something like that. You know, if you can have it essentially up and running before people ever get there. Well, they're going to need a habitat of some kind, that's for certain. But it'll all be very exciting, and we'll watch it unfold as it happens, and hopefully we'll live to see it. Well, those people are going to need SBF 1 million when they go there, because that's the one thing. That, <laughs> no uh, kidding. I saw the, uh, what David's talking about, I saw the special on the 3D printer and everything like that. But the one thing that, in the building, by the way, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely an amazing piece of engineering. The thing, that caught, the thing that caught my attention right away, and I happened to be sitting with a buddy of mine who works at JPL, we were watching this on TV, and we went, there's no shielding in this thing. They're counting on the concrete and the other stuff to act as a shielding. That ain't going to work. You're going to have crispy dead people inside of a week. The fact uh, is, that's where the water. artificial uh, magnetosphere comes in, and that's also in the plans. And if they can get that up and operational, planet Mars will become very habitable. It'll be safe. Well, maybe not, not completely. But, I mean, again, it's waiting for the technology to be done and all that. It's, it's all on the drawing boards, though, so... I, I suspect it'll take a little longer than some of us would like, but um, I think My it's lifetime? a viable environment for us uh, before we know it. How do you start up the core of a planet, though? I'm, I'm just not... No, it's not how it, they do it. They're doing it in a different... They're creating the shield out in space. Right. There's a couple of ways. It, I've it seen... puts the planet into a, uh, Greenhouse a, effect. a trail of whatever they put in space. And that's what protects the planet. Right. I've, I've seen a couple before. of different uh, ways to go about doing uh, what she's talking about. And, well, certainly it fits with the theme here of extremes. Can you come up with a uh, way to kickstart the Martian dynamo? Because we know it had one at one point. It did. Sure, but, but it's, it's frozen shut down. So yeah. you're talking about having to re-liquify the core far more than it currently is and then get it spinning again. 
all uh what was the movie um the core or something like that that would be i think more extreme than putting something in space right no the, the more realistic is uh, as uh, uh wendy is suggesting you essentially create a small constellation of satellites which create a magnetic field amongst the satellites and then that is placed in a orbit that shadows mars itself and essentially it ends up in the magnetic shadow of the satellites that'd be uh, arthur c clark's uh, sunshield from the <laughs> sunstar uh, right. i know i know i know what you're talking about because um yeah. a, i read the damn book and but b because i was bored one day i actually sat down to figure out how to do it uh-huh. uh, come, come pretty close in, in the thing but that's essentially it you're going to need a solar shield Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, made from small nanite level technology. You, you know, you can't just put some polymers up there and pray for rain. But anyway, I don't mean to go on about Mars, but it was one of the places that I researched for my book, The Planets, uh, which is a poetry collection, granted. But my book takes you on a literary journey of the solar system via sci-fi-ku poetry, which is science fiction themed haiku. Um, but to write, I, like book, I ended up having <laughs> I, I a lot of research yeah, cool. of the entire solar system. Mars turned out to be one of my favorite worlds just because there's so much information. But uh, yeah, it, it's it's just fascinating. And I won't even go into what I, I was learning about Venus, but that has some fascinating aspects for colonization as well. And it's a question of, you know, whether it be Mars or Venus, and I'll restrict it to those two, what do you do to make these planets habitable. With Venus, you've got uh, a magnetic field still, not as necessarily as strong as Earth's, but it could probably use a little bit of a boost. Uh, Mars, you need one. And then Mars, you need to add atmosphere. Venus, unless you're just going to live in the extreme high altitudes, you need Why not? I mean, it's atmosphere. A- Actually, it's a um, viable environment for us at a certain altitude. If you have a floating city, which evidently, from what I understand, our atmosphere that we breathe would be a natural buoyancy uh, element to lift our city up. And you wouldn't even have to really pressurize it. It it would be very simple to live inside this thing. Venus is actually a more viable option for colonization in many ways than Mars is. But we oh. we are focused on Mars, and you know that's the way I think it's going to go. But, well, it, uh, it's like uh, it's like uh, that guy uh, Ducky Smith from uh, NASA said. He goes, "There's a what, what do you call them? Ground centrists. They feel they have to have their feet on ground, otherwise they're not actually somewhere." But if you, exactly. by the way, that's the guy who's working on the warp drive for NASA too. So same. Oh, here. okay. Is that so, uh, white? Yeah, white. Yeah. Cool. But one of the things they said, and just like you said. Building a city, I think it's at like the 15, 20,000 foot mark up in the air. You know, mm-hmm. you really, it's low pressurization. It's there. And people are like, well, you're not on the ground. Well, you're not going to be on the ground on Mars anyway, except in an abstract sense, because you're going to have to be indoors or you're going to have to be encased in a suit, because otherwise you're going to die. And right. Unless they terraform Mars. Now, that's a whole different conversation. Right. And that, that was where I was going with the addition of the atmosphere. Uh, for Mars or removal of atmosphere for Venus, that's where you get into the absolute terraforming. Because with Mars, if you're not going to add atmosphere, then you're going to live underground. Or if you're going to be above ground, it's going to be in 
highly uh, shielded suits and buildings. And, and maybe there is enough water on Mars that you can cover a habitat with water. What about that? Water is a great radiation shield. Well, that would require an increase in uh, atmospheric pressure so you could get liquid water, either that or um, as we're starting to figure out, there is liquid water, but it's only liquid because it is so such a solution yeah. of uh, salts and whatnot. To, so you have to process it. It needs to be heavily processed. And you have needs to, to go down that, pretty far to get it. Just, you know, in case, encased in ice, which again is no different than drilling down 100 meters and just living, uh, creating an artificial cavern and living underground. Why not do the El Neal cylinder idea, which again, we probably could already build that with present day technology. And you build them big Absolutely. enough, millions of people could live. Now, again, it is a matter of shielding, but uh, that's also a viable thing. I mean, we're on the cusp of such an exciting time in human uh, history. I mean, it's just really incredible, all the directions that we could be going, um, you know, when it's out of our COVID cave here. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, uh, an orbital habitat, if we could just get one going. Just one. It'd be incredible. It would, make, it would be so easy to start making others. You know, if we're going to do that, that's one of those unintended consequences. There's a movie um, recently, uh, last couple of years, that addressed that. The colony up above, you could see it. It was the rich only. Elysium. Oh, Elysium. That's the one. Yeah, Elysium, yeah. And then it was also dealt with uh, with the robot girl. I forget the name of that, Right. Oh, a, a yeah. leak, a, a, until a battle angel. That was really good. Though. Oh, the battle. Uh, I was oh, very like, impressed. Alita, Alita, Alita. But I mean, why should uh, really, be the rich? I mean, the, it, the environments could be made so big, they would be hungry for people. It'd be a great place for immigrants to go with the prop, you know, it, normal middle class people should be able to I don't disagree I, I don't disagree with you Wendy, but at the same time human nature being what oh. it is, the exclusivity of that it was really shown really well in Elysium the movie. Did you guys ever see the cartoon Phantom 2020? No. It's an amazing thing. If you get a chance, it's like three seasons long, binge watch it, it's inspiring. But the whole idea was there, there was a group of people who lived in Earth orbit, and they were fourth or fifth generation. They could no longer live on Earth. They were taller. They were thinner. They had evolved into a new species. And now they were fighting for their rights because they were the workers that the rich people would go up and do what they needed to do, and then they'd leave and what have you. But these people were forced to stay there. And it was an interesting sociological look at it. But now they were the rebels. Now they were you know, looking to overthrow the Earth, and they were well, that's the, that that gets into some of the other questions that uh, got put in the uh, the chat, such as the societal and physical effects. So you have a colony, but because of limitations of technology, maybe we can only spin it up to two thirds gravity. What kind of physical side effects is that going to have? Yes, you've got. Um, Right, you've got gravity is going to be a social dividing point in the future, too, because you know, uh, artificial stations can be at full earth gravity, so the people living there would have that aspect, people on earth would, 
But say you live on uh, Venus or Mars where it's less or on the moon, um, eventually people there will be forced to stay there because of the lower gravity. Um, That might actually become a poverty kind of place because you're trapped. I I don't know. It's just interesting. Well, perhaps it would be the opposite because you have the ability to lift your resources into orbit and get them around and bring them back down at a less expensive rate than the earth and the earth becomes the third world country so to speak because yes it may may be home but it depends off the earth anymore it's very expensive and it's so easy just to harvest an asteroid and drop it down here i mean it doesn't really cost anything to drop a rock right it costs immeasurable amounts of money to send it up and there's more than enough uh, resources out just floating around in space and asteroids to do all the building we would probably want for a thousand years or more. We can send the palladium down here, you know, just drop it in the ocean somewhere and boom, there it is. I, I guess it's because we live here and human beings in general live here on Earth only at this time in history. We're still Earth-centric. Well, dropping the rock F4, um processing was kind of addressed a little bit in uh, the neutronium alchemist series where essentially they in orbit they melted it foamed it and then they dropped that and they they lost you know on re-entry burn up and whatnot a couple percentage points but you've got this giant teardrop thing and it's foamed so it floats oh fun so then you yeah, just I'm have still to grab thinking it, about the tsunami that comes after you drop it in there. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, you drop the Apollo uh, missions when they splashed down in the ocean. There wasn't a tsunami. You just make the packets small enough. And then, of course, there's the beanstalk method, too, where you build essentially a tower into space. And then it's an elevator wow. that goes up. Yeah, it's a space elevator. That is an excellent cool. idea. Yeah, it's a space elevator. Yes. The only difficulty we have technically with a space elevator is the material strong enough to withstand the stresses. Now we have some carbon nanotubes uh, and uh, braided uh, artificial diamond both have potential for that, but the issue is manufacturing them in the quantities and the length that makes it viable. And right now we're nowhere near being able to do that. This is something we can write about. It's not going yeah. to become obsolete in three years. I like it. <laughs> By the way, I just just for the record, I want this. I want this taken down as as memorialized forever. I hate Eric. I really, really hate Eric right now. Uh oh. I've been locked down with an asthma patient, so I have not had a cigarette in five weeks, and I'm losing my mind. <laughs> right, okay, I'm back sorry. to the regular show. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Eric, turn off your video when you. Uh, no, nah, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love discussions like this, and when I get involved in one, I just gotta have a few puffs. <laughs> oh, I, I'm right there with you, except obviously I'm fucking not now, am I? <laughs> <laughs> so one of the other parts of this, and we've really focused on tech because I think we're all sci-fi here or at least mostly, uh, myself, I, I don't like to limit myself. So I have mages operating right next to uh, somebody with a laser pistol. And they, I see them as complementary magic as a, basically a different way to achieve the same ends that you can with tech. 
when I when I wrote the Brutal Riders, um, one of the things I did it was very it was uh, for those of you who don't know it, it's a quickly story, quick story here. My, this one review sums it up best. If David Brin came off a three-day tequila bender and dropped acid, he would have written the Brutal Riders. It's like uplift turned upside down. I oh, love that review. It is hilarious. I, it is. It's like you get that review comes in and you go, yeah, I'm keeping that motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Anyway, so that, that gives you an idea. It's uplift upside down. The, uh, Frankenstein's creatures don't become part of the universe. They take it over. But one of the things when, when I was researching it, when I was putting it together, I, I had a character called Geldish that I wanted to be a little off. I wanted him to be a little odd. And so what I did was I gave him the, I gave him the power of magnetism. Gating Magneto from Marvel Universe. But as I was playing with it and I was realizing that we are made of iron, all of our molecules are, you know, we are an iron based life form, if you really put it down, the carbon, our iron, you know, oxygen, and if he could actually control all metallic objects and everything that had a metallic molecule in it, then he could do some pretty odd things. And in my book, um, I postulated, I actually used a, a Russian research paper to make this happen. But uh, in my book, I postulated that he could control his molecular structure so much that he could melt into the sand, travel across it, and pop back up someplace else undetected because he was part of the molecular structure of the environment he was traveling to. Uh, it makes him a scary mother. It makes him a very scary character. And, uh, <laughs> but, it, you know, but I guess that guy from X Men, uh, Magneto. I always right, thought right. Magneto was crazy powerful. It, basically, what I wanted to do was take Magneto to its ultimate. You know, it, it, we're talking about here taking tech to its extreme. If you took a, a freak of nature like Magneto, took it all the way to the extreme, then he should be able to control everything, including his own molecular structure, to, to just dissolve it and then put it back together again, which would mean that consciousness would be carried in a different set of ways than the way we look at consciousness, which I also get into that because this was supposed to be a short story. And it ended up being a 322,000 word, not short story, but it got <laughs> wow. published. So. That's a trilogy. <laughs> it, it is now, but you, oh, here's a funny story. It is a trilogy now. You can go buy it. It's, it's out all over. But my favorite thing is that in England, they like the thick books. They, 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 like, they like the books that you can beat somebody to death with. So they've, <laughs> they've repackaged my trilogy into an omnibus, cleaned up the editing. So it's a one straight story. So it's 1,204 pages that you can just beat someone to death with or use it to prop up a car, whatever you need. But it exists. It's up digitally right now on Amazon. And it'll be physically, once I get printing presses working around the world, because I'm obviously not an essential writer, but it it exists. And there there exists a 1,200-page version of a dystopian universe that scares the hell out of people. Wow. Wow. That's outstanding. Thank you. 